This morning is going to be a little bit different. Um, if you've been a part of the last couple of sermons with me, uh, you'll know that uh, the passages of Scripture have allowed me to maybe preach a little bit more than teach. Uh, but the passage this morning, as we move into Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 15 through 20, uh, is really a bit more of a teaching passage. And in fact, over the next two weeks, what we're going to be looking at uh, are the rest of the sermon. So we are going to be finishing the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached uh, in Matthew 7, uh, verses 15 all the way through 24. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that in two parts. Uh, I just wanted to kind of highlight for you, sorry, through 27. Uh, we're going to be looking today at Matthew 15 through 20. And um, what you need to understand is that we've already sort of reached a climax in Jesus' sermon. Uh, the main point for today has kind of already been set up by what we talked about last week. Uh, last week's point, uh, you might remember, is that you've got two choices. Uh, basically, Jesus says you can take my way or the highway, right? You, cannot, you can kind of walk down my little country road, right? Or you can take uh, the eight-lane highway of the world, right? That's the idea behind enter through the narrow gate and wide is the gate and all that sort of stuff, right? So that's kind of a climaxing part to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, you can't get to God, says Jesus, uh, without taking the road less traveled, the little country road with the little narrow gate. So that's the climax, but from that now he transitions into uh, some teaching about some things that we have to be really, really aware of. We have got to hear some things that are going to help us to stay on, or in some cases to get on that narrow road. There's three critical areas of discernment. And they either lead to being deceived, so that we think we're on this little narrow road when really we're not, or they lead to being discipled. And we're going to talk about what those things are over the next two weeks. The first concept, as I've said here, what we're going to talk about today is verses 15 through 20, and that is the idea of being misled. Beware of false teachers. You can be misled, and we have to be very wary of that. The second and the third concepts that we'll talk a little bit more about next week is not that you are misled, but that you are self-deceived. So Jesus takes this sermon, he climaxes it and says, get on the narrow road, but now be careful because you could be on some road that you don't even know that is misleading you, taking you somewhere you don't even want to be. So those are the two concepts. And even next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to be self-deceived. I can, what I say isn't enough, right? What I do or what I hear isn't enough. I can hear things, I can say things, and I can think that I've got it all figured out. But we're going to talk about that next week. Today, the main thought that you want to grab a hold of, and, and this really will be the main thought over the next two weeks, is this. Disciples of Christ, that's you and me. That's us. As we've been going through this Sermon on the Mount, we are learning to be disciples of Christ. We examine ourselves regularly and carefully to guard against deception. That's whether that's external or internal, whether we're being misled or self-deceived in our pursuit, in their pursuit of holiness and righteousness. That is our main thought for today. As disciples, we need to be guarding against self-deception. Deception. Before I read these verses for today, I want to just do a little bit of a review. And I've done that already for you, right? But I'm going to just draw out a, a main point for us as we dig into these verses today. 
Basically, Jesus has been talking throughout this entire sermon. He's been saying that all that I've taught you has basically affirmed a lot of what you already know. You're religious. But of course, Jesus says your religion won't get it done. We have to take it to a higher level. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the most righteous people that you know. But that's nearly impossible. Because in many ways, though not always, and we've talked about that, those righteous people, they already were trying and not succeeding because we know that our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to draw ourselves to God. So, I don't know about you, but if you reflect on all the sermons that we've had over the last almost six months now, right? As we've been working our way through the sermon, there might be an aspect of the Sermon on the Mount where we throw our hands up and we kind of say, how do I do all of this? How do I become this person that Jesus is calling me to become? I can't, right? That's really the essence of this sermon in in a lot of ways is I can't do it. But Jesus expects it of me. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We can't do it in and of ourselves. We need Christ in our lives. That's why we can relate to the Beatitudes. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. They are us when we come to the end of ourselves. When we let go of striving and working too hard and when we let go of the pride that says, I'll get it done, God. I'll get it done. We can't live the life of Christ apart from Christ living in and having authority in our hearts. Hence my belief that the Sermon on the Mount is all about God wanting our hearts. It's not about our actions. It's not even about a cleaned up sense of moral living. I said that right from the beginning. If we just turn this into a how-to list, oh, let me just do this, make sure I don't do that, we are missing the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about how do I go deeper into Christ? How does Christ go deeper into me? How do I live differently? We need to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. That's why He came. To draw all men unto Him. To empower us through His Holy Spirit to live the will of God. And what is the will of God other than that all men might believe in God and in the one He sent, Jesus Christ. That all may know Him and love Him and serve Him. Nothing else compares. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you as well. So none of this can be done without Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our lives. And so you and I, we try to engage. We try to live this life that Jesus has pointed out for us. And we try to change some things. And lo and behold, along come some teachers who are trying to help us. And that brings us to today's verses. 
I'm going to read them for you in the NLT. You can look them up in the NIV and a Bible in front of you, but there's some aspects to the NLT that I really do like. Uh, so I'm going to read Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20 right now in the NLT version for you. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So, every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And I like the way the NLT puts it there in terms of actions, right? Sometimes we think of fruit as accomplishments. And sometimes we get lulled into thinking that, oh, that person who has that great following is really doing a great thing and saying all the right stuff, and we turn our attention to them, and the reality is their accomplishments mean nothing. Look at their lives, look at their actions, look at who they are. That's the fruit right there. And that's really what Jesus, I think, is calling us to be aware of. Many people will claim to know Christ and work hard to point us to a version of Christ that isn't really Christ. Many who claim Christ is not actually part of the Trinity. And I'll read some quotes for you in a few minutes that will kind of highlight that. They say that Jesus Christ wasn't even fully divine. That others came after him and that there's new revelation and offers of ways to connect with a version of who God is. Some will say that we're all little gods because of who God is. And they claim that God wants us all to be happy and healthy and wealthy. They claim that many paths lead to God. They claim that all of the world's religions, major religions, essentially worship the same God. And for that reason, we should all essentially just get along with one another. They make the gospel into something more than Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Today I want to look at two examples to just crystallize for you what I'm talking about in terms of what it means to be aware of false teachers. In our world today, we're going to look at world religions. I'm just going to give you a high-level view of some of the comparison and contrasting elements of our world religions. And there's a quote-unquote, and this is all in a little case, right, doctrine of sameness out there that we're going to talk about. Um, I don't know who coined it, but somebody's talked about it, and I'm going to use the phrase because it really works well today. And then the second one, and I'll follow it up with uh, some examples of what are false teachers and their sayings. What's going on out there in the world today? How do you know that I'm not misleading you? What are some things that you apply through your filter to know that what I'm teaching you is truth? In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says, Now the Bereans, this was a group that Paul had gone out and ministered to, now the Bereans were of more noble character because they tested everything that Paul said to see if what was true. They took it back to the Scriptures, they applied it to the Scriptures, and they, they held it up and they said, Okay, Paul, this is what the Scriptures say, this is what you say. And they compared it 
Nobody, not you, not I, should be sitting there taking in everything without examining everything that is said. And I want to give you some tools to do that today. You can use them, you can apply them to me. I don't care, but I want you to be well informed about false teaching in the world today because it is all around us and so many of us are being lulled into it. And that's why Jesus put it right in his sermon to close out his sermon. Beware of false teachers and false prophets. I'm going to start with this comparison and contrastion, contrastion, contrasting uh, elements of world religions. And I'm going to play for you a video. Um, this is Ravi Zacharias. Some of you will know him as a teacher. Uh, he is an apologist. He is a Bible scholar. Uh, I have come to really enjoy listening to Ravi Zacharias. He really details things out in a really profound way. He's making a point here as it relates to Islam as uh, one of our one of the major three religions in the world. We've got Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, right? And then there's some variations off of those. But um, he's going to make a point about Islam in this video. It's only uh, two and a half minutes, and uh, Grant's going to play it for us. But as you're listening to him, think about this thought. For so many of us in our world today, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to build bridges. And we think that that is a healthy thing to do in some ways relationship and connectedness that is an important thing to do we like to build bridges with people but in the process of building our bridges we don't necessarily know our fundamental differences and so what happens when we build these bridges together is that we work to embrace one another and in the process of embracing one another it's at the expense of truth it's at the expense of the foundational things that we believe because in order to get to that commonality you have to water down and you have to not believe certain things about who you are and what you believe as a Christian. And that's what we're going to talk about for just a couple of minutes here. So Grant, why don't you go ahead and play that video and then I'll tell you to stop it because there's a point at which I want you to stop it. So make sure the sound is up on it. has got one of the finest critiques on Brian McLaren's uh, Generous Orthodoxy, which I have downloaded before and used. Uh, you must follow up on that. There's another angle of this which uh, I, I will address, and that is that these emergent churches are going to produce a generation of people who actually will not be able to handle the challenge of Islam and other major world religions. They will not be able to handle it. And uh, my wife and I were having dinner with a very notable gentleman, I shall leave unnamed, but he was, uh, he says he communicates to more people across television than anybody else in the world at any, on any given day. And uh, I won't say too much more, but we're sitting across the table and he said he'd just been talking to a Muslim scholar and came away quite impressed with the fact that he had not known that there was really not that much of difference between Islam and Christianity. So. My wife and I were having dinner with him, and my wife is very, very well controlled in her expressions, and I thought she was going to choke at that moment. I had to just uh, turn over to her and calm her down. Uh, I said, uh, why did you say that? He said, well, you know, he talked about all the points of agreement we have and so on. I said, well, let's go from here. They don't believe we have the Bible, that the New Testament is lost. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe he died on the cross. They don't believe he rose again from the dead. They don't believe he's coming again as king. Do you think there's a difference between what they believe and what we do? I said, they don't have the gospel. But you know, this is the problem. 
the Muslims have shown us up. We don't know what we believe. When they present their ideas to an average young Christian going to a, one, of the, one of these emergent churches, one of the most prominent of those churches draws about 20,000 on Sunday. You can read his book. In that entire book of having a better life now and best life now and so on, there is not one mention of the cross in it. There, there is no gospel there. And so, you know, along with all the other compromises, we're going to be shown up. And the whole idea of RC here, you can't show counterfeit if you do not know what the genuine is. And I think that's a big price we are going to pay very dearly as a result of this kind of lack of proper teaching. You can Just stop recently, it right there, Roddy. Grant. All right. Thank you. Dr. Zacharias, in that particular clip, is addressing uh, what I loosely referred to as the doctrine of sameness, right? Um, again, I don't know who coined it, um, but it's a helpful term for us this morning. Um, and for my purposes, I'm going to draw from a professor and author um, at Taylor University. His name is Winfried Cordwan. Uh, he, he's going to use that phrase, and you'll hear it in some of the quotes that I'm going to read for you. The idea is this, essentially, that on the surface we can identify obvious differences between our religions. Dr. Zacharias, just in one minute, just identified the obvious differences between Christianity and Islam. But at their core, some people will say, don't they all essentially teach the same point? And don't we all essentially worship the same God? And that's where we have to be more discerning. Because that is the prevailing thought in a lot of our culture. Remember, this is a series on being counter-cultural. So what do we need to know so that we can actually be different than the world around us? So let's just talk, let's just review really briefly uh, the obvious differences. Dr. Cordoan says this, Christianity holds that we are born sinful, that Christ was the Son of God, He died for our sins, and that if we have faith in Him, we will be part of His kingdom eternally. Okay, that's Christianity. That, that's the gospel in a nutshell. He goes on to say, Islam teaches that we are born sinless. And that we may go to heaven if we try our best to obey Allah. And Islam even specifies that Christ is not the Son of God and that He did not die for our sins. Hinduism says that trying to get to heaven is a waste of time. Even if we were to spend some time in heaven, we would eventually be reborn on earth because we are trapped in a seemingly endless cycle of reincarnation. Salvation, according to Hinduism consists of escaping this cycle altogether. So at their very core, we can identify doctrinal differences. We're not all the same. But those obvious things sometimes get set aside because we don't want to create division. And so they're just superficial differences, aren't they? They're doctrinal, but you know, let's just overlook all of that and let's get past all of that. Isn't that just creating division? That's the doctrine of sameness. So, at the heart of this doctrine of sameness, where sometimes we like to get caught up in the cultural discussions of our day, 
The heart of the argument goes like this. Dr. Cordoan, again, I'm going to quote him. He says, there is a spiritual reality. This is where people like to go. There's a spiritual reality that goes beyond the common human experience. Human beings are finite, and often we do not live up to our full potential, and they may even do evil things. All religions, all religions serve to help humans to make contact with this spiritual reality and thereby to lead better lives. In the process, religions will some will issue some of the moral commandments, some of the same moral commandments, such as encouraging people to tell the truth, uh, not to steal, not to murder, to work for peace in the world, and to be tolerant of others. According to the sameness doctrine, says Dr. Cordoan, the, the more you study other religions, the more you realize they all teach the same stuff sort of at the core. So is this really true? Done quoting for a minute. Is this really true? Is there a doctrine of sameness? Intellectually, we can answer that question. We can actually go and study all these other world religions. And we can find out and we can contrast and we can compare. Dr. Cordoan would point out that quickly you would find something like Zen Buddhism, for instance, does not advocate that there is actually a spiritual reality. We could do the same for all the other religions and find very little similarity. In fact, says Dr. Cordoan, no religion advocates a vague notion of spiritual reality, which is what the doctrine of sameness would like you to believe. Quoting again from him, rather each one directs people to some specific reality, such as God, big G, God's little g, Allah, or Brahman. Religions do not teach ways to make contact with some transcendent spiritual reality. Rather, they teach about faith, submission, meditation, realization, and so forth. No matter where you look, religions are always about specific ideas and beliefs. He would go on to say this. Can you get me to the next slide there, Grant? There we go. These are some of the obvious differences that we have. This is Dr. Cordoan again. When Christians talk about God as the highest being, they think of God as Trinity. Three persons in one nature. That's you and I. That's our vision of who God is. And surely this description is incompatible with what Muslims believe when they explicitly reject the Trinity. Furthermore, many Hindus believe that Brahman, their highest being, is far above any personal conception of God. And so Christians, Muslims, and Hindus cannot possibly be talking about the same reality. Similarly, Christianity teaches that the specific requirement for salvation is explicit faith in the unique person and work of Jesus Christ. Everybody say amen. Not like robots, but like you mean it. Amen. Amen? That is Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. While Muslims state that faith in Christ is of little avail, but that what counts for your salvation is the following the observance of God's commandments to the letter of the law. That's what Muslims would tell you. Many Hindus not only understand salvation completely differently, in other words, this escape from reincarnation, but their way to achieve salvation, called Dharma, has little in common with what Christians and Muslims practice. The one thing that Hindus do have in common with Christians and Muslims is that they reject any generic idea such as making contact with spiritual reality. Insisting rather that their way, under their vocabulary, is essential. You find salvation within the specific context of the religion or you don't find it at all. 
Finally, although most religions enjoin some similar ethical practices, such as telling the truth and respecting other people's property, frequently those values just come along with the religion. And even then, what is meant by, say, truth is going to be heavily colored by the religious context. This is super high level, folks. You can dig a lot deeper to find these differences and understand what's going on in the major world religions, but we know in our culture that there is every attempt to try and bridge these gaps to make it all seem like we're all one and the same. That is the culture. That's the stream we're fighting up against. We're swimming up against. And it's a false teaching. It's false prophecy. It's false because there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. The sameness doctrine wants us to take all of these abstract generalities, which really, to our ears, sometimes sound really, really good. You can acknowledge that. It sounds really good. We do like to get along. But they turn them into a prescription that says all religions essentially share the same core doctrine. And that is not true. Not only is it not true, I would say that it's not helpful. And in fact, for those religions, it's not even respectful. It says we don't understand what they actually believe and they don't understand what we believe. Are there some redeeming qualities in those religions? I'm sure in abstract terms we could agree on some truthfulness and kindness and and other things, right? We We can agree that there's some redeeming qualities to them. But there's nothing inherent or unique to those religions that is not already established or needed in the Christian pursuit of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We don't need to look to other religions to help us understand who God is. We've got it all right here. We've got it all in Jesus Christ. We don't need another religion to help us get there. None of them, save Christianity, are a path to the true God of the Bible. They do not acknowledge the work of Jesus Christ as the divinely inspired Son of God, crucified and resurrected with a firmly established kingdom among us now. And yes, you could study them. But the challenge is, and you heard Dr. Zacharias say this, the challenge is, if you want to know a counterfeit, you don't study the counterfeit. You study the true thing so that when the counterfeit shows up, you know that it is indeed a counterfeit just by its very nature. And sometimes we spend our time trying to understand the false stuff and we're not strong enough and we can get lulled into believing what those false things are teaching us. We have to be very, very cautious. Yes, you can study them, but surround yourself by people who understand the truth, who know the truth so well that they can help hold you accountable in your pursuit of that study. Discern the differences in the world religions. And don't be lulled into believing the same thing. That they're the same thing because they're not. That is a lie and it is perpetuated by Satan in our culture every single day. Beware of false teachers, Jesus says. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They come to you looking kind and sweet and can't we all just get along, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They simply want to draw you into what they believe. You need to know what you believe. The Sermon on the Mount 
and all other of, of Jesus' teachings throughout the New Testament and embracing the teachings of the Old Testament is all part of what we need to understand as who God is and who Jesus Christ is. Now there's one important caveat and I want to make sure that you hear me on this. With all of that said, it might sound like I'm talking about isolating ourselves from the rest of the people in the world or the other religions, right? I don't want that to be the message that you hear from me. We need to be aware of what those people, the, the world religions, are teaching, right? But we're not to live in isolation of them, especially if we believe that they need to know Jesus Christ. If we believe that we have the truth, our goal should be to develop relationships with them, to get to know them, to hear their story. Not to be influenced and drawn away by them, but to live in this world in such a way that Christ and His love shows through us for them because they are lost. They think they're on the narrow road when they're really on an eight-lane highway and it's not going to heaven. So don't look at what I'm saying. Don't listen to what I'm saying and feel like I'm saying, isolate yourselves. God's love, if it lives in you, be drawn to those relationships. I'm talking in some ways what Jesus is saying about false teachers, false prophets, those that would seek to lead you astray. But the average person, the common people, the families that you rub shoulders with on a day in and day out, they're trying to find the truth just like you are. You don't need to be afraid of them or their families, their ways. Like, get to know them. And then allow your faith, your love in Christ to rub off on them. They might receive it. They might not receive it. But we're not necessarily living in isolation. This is a world filled with diversity. And we're simply bringing Jesus Christ into it wherever we go. He's already here, right? We're just, we're being his hands and his feet wherever we go. So that's all I have time to say say on this first point of the, the world religions aspect. Beware of false teachers. There is so much more you could dig into with this particular topic. And I would encourage some of you who are ready to do that to do that. But for the second example, I want to run through some uh, ideas to give you an idea of what are false teachers, false prophets in our world. What do they look like? Beyond world religions, there are people who actually claim to love and know Christ, and they really don't. So now I'm not talking about Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or anything. like. I'm not talking about people who stand before thousands and thousands of people on a week-in and week-out basis and say they love and know Christ and they teach something other than the way of the gospel. So, I've given you seven different categories that they would fall into and I'm going to read those verses that come along with that. And then I'm going to share for you some interesting quotes and I'm not going to assign the names of those quotes. If you are interested, you can come talk to me afterwards. It's not my point to necessarily throw people under the bus, but the idea is that you need to be aware when you're listening to people share their ideas, ideas have consequences. And if you're not listening with an attuned ear, you're going to hear something and it's going to tickle your ear. And it's going to be like, that sounds really good. And all of a sudden you're going to be listening to that person more and more because some of what they said was really good. But the bottom line is... They're not given the gospel message. And we need to be attuning our ears to that. So the first one are those who are straight up heretical. That's the first category. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction upon themselves. 
Here's a couple of quotes from people that you may have listened to on television or on the radio. Get this. One person said, Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. I can show you videos of this, just so you know. Like All of these come straight off of videos that I've, I've looked at. Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. That is straight up heresy. That is, there's no truth to that statement as we understand the Bible and as we understand Jesus Christ. Another one said, the biggest failure in the Bible is actually God. Another one says this, you are gods. The real me is just like God. That sounds like the Tower of Babel. That sounds like the lie the enemy whispered into Eve and Adam's ear. You can be like How about this one? Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. Do you spot the heresy in that already? Jesus, the only begotten son of God? He was God right from the very beginning, from the immaculate conception, right? Another one says there is no hell. Sorry, Jesus spoke about hell about as much as he... A little bit less than he spoke about money, but he spoke about hell an awful lot. I believe him. I think there is actually a place called hell. In this category of heretics, you get other religions like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. They're teaching things that are contrary to Scripture. They're adding to Scripture. They have their own holy books. They have other ways of understanding who God is. They're heretical. Heretical is just an idea that says... It's contrary to the established, rooted, historical doctrines of the Christian faith. And there are people out there who are saying those things. It's shocking. The second one, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each of these, uh, charlatan. That's, that's those who kind of peddle in trickery, right? They like to make you think certain things, but really, what are they trying to do? They're out for their own personal gain, they're just trying to trick you into their own personal gain. First Timothy 6, 3 through 5, uh, and I'm going to start with verse 4, actually. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments, ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people are always caused trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just another way to become wealthy. That was Paul writing to Timothy. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, if you want to look it up in the Bible, you can see that was somebody who was peddling in trickery and sorcery and for his own personal game. Here's a quote from well-known televangelist. As spiritual beings who possess the nature of God, we have the power to speak things into existence, just as God did in Genesis 1 building you up that's puffing you up that's saying you can be like god and speak like god and there is no other god than god we serve the living god our words have no more power than anybody else now psychologically we know that words have power right so in psychology and in counseling we say words do have power but they're not divine power They're not speaking things into existence that weren't there. We have to be cautious 
about how we use the language and overuse psychological and, and counseling terms to understand spiritual things. And these televangelists are playing upon the fact that you might not be able to discern that difference. How about this? Um, you can control the weather. You're supposed to control the weather. Somebody actually said that. Or this. Um, a preacher was quoting 3 John chapter 2. They said, dear, and this is the verse, says, Dear friends, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. That is a greeting that John wrote to the people. 3 John, that's a greeting. And the preacher, in the very next sentence, goes on to say, See, by that verse, God wants everybody to be healthy. There's no teaching. There's no doctrine in that statement. It is a greeting, just like you. I hope, I hope all is well with you. Oh, Pastor Scott said everybody should be healthy. No. No. How about this verse? You've heard people quote this, By your stripes, by his stripes we are healed. Right? How many times have you heard that? By his stripes we are healed. And, and the televangelists, the people that are saying these types of things, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say that by Jesus' stripes, by his death and atonement on the cross, by those stripes you are physically healed. That's what they want you to think. And they're quoting... For those of you that don't know, Isaiah 53, 4. And it says this, Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. By his stripes we are healed. They want you to think that you can be physically healed because Christ died on the cross. It's not what that verse is about. It's about a spiritual healing. It's about having victory in Christ spiritually overcoming sin and death and all of that sort of stuff but they twist those words to make you feel like you can be physically healed because christ died on the cross does christ sometimes heal yes there are manifestations of christ's spirit working in our world today where he brings healing but that's not the verse and we can't use it to peddle that and oh by the way they go on to say if you just send a little bit of money in then that will assure your healing that's usually how it goes Last one for this particular one is, uh, you determine the amount of your harvest by the amount of the seed that you sow. How many have heard that kind of a phraseology? Just give a little bit. Get, the more you give, if you've got a big problem, give a lot. Because if you want to see God move, just give a little, just give as much as you can give. And, and it's all about give, 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 give. And, and what are they saying? Give me your money and God will bless you. God will return it unto you over and over again, pressed down, shaking together, all that kind of stuff. What are they saying? The seed that they're quoting, the parable, it's about God's word. It's not about money at all. There's no context for money there. But these guys and girls, they want you to believe that there's some kind of blessing financially that you can get by hearing these words. So, be cautious. Be cautious. I'm going to run through the other ones uh, pretty quickly. Uh, it says over in 1 John, there's a... 1 John 4, 1. There's false prophets in the world. It says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak this by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. Don't just assume. Somebody says, I'm speaking the Word of God today. Okay. Lord, help me to discern. Are they speaking the Word of God? Does it line up? And I'll talk about how you can discern those things in a few minutes. False prophets, uh, Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, would be a false prophet. He came along, said he got an extra revelation. 
wrote it down. It became the Book of Mormon, and he knows a little bit more than Jesus, and, and that sort of thing. That, that's false prophecy. That goes back under heresy, right? There's another well-known evangelist out there. He's just asked for money to buy himself a $54 million jet. He's quoted as saying, God has asked me for my opinion. God has asked me for my opinion. That is a guy I would steer clear from. Job 38.2 says this, Who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Who are we to claim that God would ask us his opinion? Abuser. The abuser. Second Peter um, chapter 2, verse 2. I mean, these are folks that come along and, and they just try to take advantage of people. They just try to hurt and abuse um, your sensibilities. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality, leading to destruction. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money, but God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. How about dividers? People that come in and seek to divide the church. Let's look at verses 18 through 21. I'll just read 18 and 19 of Jude. They told you in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating division among you. They follow their natural instincts. Because they do not have God's spirit in them. That's the culture, right? It's the culture we live in. Just following what feels good. Just whatever feels right, you should do it. It's false teaching. We are to deny our flesh and take up our Christ, our cross and follow Christ. We're not just out there following every whim that feels right. About the ticklers. This is Paul's teaching to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4 says this, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. A couple more quotes for you. Very, very popular teachers said this. You have to do almost the impossible to go to hell. That sounds really appealing, doesn't it? Because I live in a culture where people don't like to talk about sin. People don't like to face that they're doing the wrong things, living the wrong way. And, and a preacher comes along and says, that's all right, you have to do nearly the impossible to go to hell. And what he's talking about is violating God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. And, and so there's a context for that statement. But people will pick up on that phrase and think, Maybe I don't have to work quite so hard. Maybe I don't have to face my own sins. Maybe I don't have to examine myself quite as, as much. Another person says, Hindus are nice kind of people who love God as well. That sounds good. Sounds good to our ears that want to build bridges with people. A few years ago, a guy by the name of Norman Vincent Peale would have kind of fit into this tickler category. He used to kind of preach a social health and welfare gospel, kind of the precursor to some of the health and welfare uh, stuff that's out there, word of faith stuff that's out there today. 
if I just speak it, it'll come into existence. If I speak it, it's true. And all those kinds of things. And he, he would speak things that just made it sound just, just good enough. But it wasn't really lining up with Scripture. The last one for the categories, the speculators. Hebrews 13.9 says this, So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food which don't help those who follow them. Then over in 1 Timothy 1.3 it says this, When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. There are all kinds of speculators out there. You could fit into this category the Da Vinci Codes. You could fit into this category even based, I'm just going to say it, some based on your view of the Tribulation and Revelation, uh, the Left Behind series is a bit speculative, right? We have to be cautious. What is that teaching us? What is that telling us about our belief in Scripture and our understanding of God and all of those things? We need to dig in and we need to understand. These are kinds of false prophets. These are sayings of people that are on the airwaves today. And I could go on and on and on. But there is only one gospel. Amen? Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. There is no, and you don't need any adjectives to to add to the gospel. There's no prosperity gospel. There's no word of faith gospel. There's no health and wealth gospel. There is even no social gospel. There is one gospel. We could go on and on, as I said, about all of these things. But suffice it to say that I'm not saying that these men and these women have no redeeming qualities, right? I'm not here to castigate them, to chastise them or anything. I'm just saying that their doctrine, in many cases, is heretical to the historical Christian doctrine. They're the definition of false teachers and false prophets because of it. Can you learn from them? Interestingly enough, there are some things that you can take away from them, right? Some of them are, are talk about how to relate to people, and, and some of them talk about kindness, and, and there, there's some things that you could, if you're listening, you can take away from them. But do you need to take it from them? Can't you hear it from a more trusted source? Can't you go to somebody who's teaching the same thing, and you know that their doctrine lines up with all of it? We really need to be cautious with all of that. If you're not exercising discernment, you could ultimately be vulnerable and be misled. Because these people are eight-lane highway preachers and teachers. They're attracting all kinds of masses of people. They're saying what people want to hear. They're defining what Paul and Timothy said about in the last days. People will seek out those who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. We must discern We must know the truth of God's word so well that when statements are made, we quickly recognize their falseness and recognize the error of them and the fiction involved. Be careful about spending too much time trying to discern the false without spending more time trying to learn the truth. Jesus says, by their fruit. By their fruit, that's their actions. That's why I like the NLT. By their actions, not their, and I said this earlier, not their accomplishments. Somebody's preaching to 20,000 people on a Sunday, reaching even more via the internet. It doesn't mean they're telling the truth. 
That's sad. That's harsh. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we want to, we inherently want to trust somebody like that. But you can't. Multi-million dollar salaries, massive multi-million dollar houses, personal jets, fancy cars, fine dining. The list could go on and on. Look at their actions. The way they spend their wealth on themselves. Compare it to the poor carpenter's son. His name was Jesus. Compare it to the likes of Mother Teresa and George Mueller who prayed for a day's ration for hundreds of orphaned children and God provided. Compare it to the countless missionaries who serve on next to nothing. Compare these well-known, famous televangelists to the disciples, most of whom were beaten, abused, put in prison, and were martyred for Christ. Tell me what's out there in the world today, by their words and by their actions, what makes you think they know Christ or Him crucified? Well, here's how you can tell. I'm going to give you quick five tests, and you should apply these tests to everybody that you're listening to, to everybody that you come into contact with. These are five basic tests. I learned these from a a guy by the name of Tim Challies. He's a good uh, guy on the uh, Bible. He's a good theologian, uh, and he's helping me think through how do we discern all of this. There's five tests. One is the test of origin. Sound doctrine originates with God. False doctrine originates with someone or something created by God. Where does what you're hearing come from? Did it come from God? Does it come from His Word? Does it come from a trusted source doctrinally? Or does it come from somebody's mind, something that was made up over time? The test is this. Does the doctrine originate with God or has it been fabricated by someone or something else? The second test is the test of authority. Does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority or does it appeal to another scripture or another mind? Who has authority in what is being said? Because if it's not God, you shouldn't listen to it. If it's not from his word, you should set it aside. Third is the test of consistency. Is this doctrine established or refuted by the entirety of scripture? And that is, we understand that in order to decipher and discern Scripture, you have to allow Scripture to teach you about other Scriptures. You have to look at the entirety of it, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All Scriptures should fit in some context there. And sometimes we pick and choose. We take a Scripture, we pull it out of context. By His stripes you are healed. You are physically healed. Send me some money. God will bless you. We we take it all out of context. The test of consistency is what you're hearing and what you've been taught consistent with the entirety of Scripture. The the fourth one is the test of spiritual growth. Sound doctrine is beneficial for spiritual health, but false doctrine leads to spiritual weakness. Are you growing in your faith? Are you becoming weaker in your faith? Are you becoming more confused? Are you becoming more aware? Are you becoming more alive in Christ? Are you trusting Christ more? Do you believe in God more and more and more and trust His Word? Or are you becoming more and more confused and just don't know where to turn, what to do, what to say, and how this all lines up? Spiritual growth should be the fruit of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And then the last one is test of godly living. Sound doctrine has value for godly living. False doctrine leads to ungodly living. So those are five tests, and you can study and and learn about those a little bit more. Jesus says to beware. Jesus says to examine actions, whether well-known evangelists or politicians, preachers, teachers, leaders in your local community, you can know them by their actions. 
It's the fruit of their lives. Don't go looking for them. Don't go looking for the truth from them. Let me make it sound like you're going to thrive, and maybe for a time you will, but the Bible says this, in the last days these people will flourish, and it will go from bad to worse. Again, Paul writing to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 13 of 2 Timothy says, But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will deceive, will themselves be deceived. That was in Paul's time. That's what he's saying to Timothy. It's no less for us. Now, the idea of flourish there, right, could be that there's going to be more and more of them. But I also think, and we can read some other parts of Scripture where it's, they're also going to prosper for a period of time as well. Don't get lulled into the prosperous nature of what they're going through. And it's going to be more and more and more in the world that we live in. The narrow road is not as easy as the eight-lane highway. But many preachers and teachers today want you to get on that eight-lane highway. Don't let yourself be deceived. Beware of false prophets. Coming to a close, take action. Don't just let what you've heard today sit on the shelf of your brain or your mind or your heart. You're being stirred to action. I can tell some of you have leaned in. Some of you are really interested in this stuff. And it is important for you to be aware. So take action. Who are you listening to? Every day, when you turn on that radio and you're listening to some preacher, teacher, they're not all bad, but you have to discern. How do you discern? There are many good ones. I listen to many with you. But there are some that are peddling false stuff out there. What are they saying? Run it through the filter of those tests. Observe their lives and their actions. Does it line up with what you read in Scripture? Does it line up with a life lived according to God's plan? Does it line up with the sermon of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because if it doesn't line up with what Jesus is teaching, if God doesn't have more and more of our hearts, if we're not acting more like Jesus intrinsically and by nature, not just in our moral code and the way we live, but if we're not the, the predisposition of our heart, if it's not towards love, if it's not towards kindness, if it's not towards gentleness and patience and peace and self control all those fruits of the Spirit, if that's not what's growing inside of you, then stand back and be aware. Because you may be on some bigger highway and not that little country road. Make some changes if they're necessary for you to make. I recognize that this is a bit longer. It's a bit difficult in some cases. I wanted to be as specific as I could be without being overly personal. But I'm telling you guys, this stuff is all around us. Jesus didn't say this to just those people sitting on a hill 2,000 years ago. He's saying this to you and me. And it's increasing and it's all around us. Know your word. When you hear something out there let it register in your brain let it register in your heart let the spirit speak to you is that good is that right or is that is that off and i'm telling you you should do that with everything that i'm saying i am above i'm not above your questioning any of it so test my words some of you do i get the lovely feedback on that that's good that's really good that's what you should do but let's learn and discern this stuff together. The, the worship team is going to come now. I'm going to invite them, and they're going to give us a time to reflect. So take some time to reflect. They're going to play through a song and, and just give you a minute to 
reflect on what you've heard, what is the Lord saying to you, what's been going on in your mind and your heart while I've been speaking. Write it down. Put it in an offering basket. We have a basket up here. There'll be some baskets in the back at the end. Let us hear what you're going through, what you're struggling with. Reach out to me personally if you have some questions. Uh, If you want to know anything about somebody that you're listening to, if you have a doubt or a question about them, first of all, test it yourself. Don't just take my word for it. But if you're still kind of on the fence about it, come, let's talk about it. Let's assess it. Let's figure out. Because we want to be right. We want to be on that narrow road together. Let me pray, and then I'll give you a chance to reflect, and then we'll... They'll sing, then they're going to lead us in a closing song, and I'll come back for the benediction in just a couple of minutes. You can also prepare tithes and offerings now, anything you want to do to use this time of reflection. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you saw fit to give us some caution. For you know that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. We have to be equipped to resist him, to stand firm in our faith. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us by the power of your spirit and your spirit alone to discern the truth from the error in our world today so that we can live truly countercultural lives, so that we can truly be different so that we can be someplace, something that, that the world knows that they need and we can be a resource that they can come to and find it. And that is you, Lord Jesus. They're not finding us. They're not finding community, authenticity, any of that, Lord. They're coming to find you. May we be a place, Lord, that you are known and spoken of boldly. May we be your disciples. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we discern the truth of your words today, to beware that you would equip us to truly be that. May we know you, Lord Jesus, so well that anything that tries to stand as a comparison, Lord, would pale in the light of your glory. We know your scripture says the angels, the enemy comes as an angel disguised as light. Lord, you are the brightest light of all and may our eyes be solely and wonderfully fixed on you and you alone, Jesus Christ. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.